Hello, welcome to Drop Songs, an alternative history of alternative rock. I am your host, Dan. This is a new show where we reclaim some old and forgotten songs from the late 90s and early 2000s, the sort of heyday of alternative rock. Uh, when there was a deluge of music out there, and a lot of it got lost in the shuffle. And some of it has been lost over time over the last 20, 30 years now due to the ever-changing world of music from vinyl to CDs to MP3s and now the streaming universe that we live in. There's a lot of great music out there that has been lost, and what we're going to do is find it on this show. And so let's get started off here with our first official drop song. This is Creeper Lagoon with Wrecking ball.
that was Creeper Lagoon with their song Wrecking Ball off their 2001 album Take Back the Universe and Give Me Yesterday. Uh, so why is that a drop song and what is a drop song really? Uh, well, I think a drop song has two main elements. Uh, one is that it has to be very high quality, uh, well-written, well-produced, well-executed, uh, something interesting musically is happening in the song. And I think uh, Wrecking Ball is a perfect example of that. Number two, lack of recognition. Uh, either it was ignored when it came out, didn't get the proper push from a label, didn't have a major label to push it on radio. Uh, no one heard it, essentially. Not a lot of people heard it. Or it's been a loss to time. And it never really made that transition into the streaming world. And people kind of don't know about it now. And so, you know, the, the whole point of the show is essentially thinking about what was popular back in the mid to late 90s and early 2000s and alternative rock. And kind of reclaim a lot of the songs that were ignored and lost then and shouldn't be. And now when we talk about, you know, the history of alternative rock and the history of, uh, you know, late 90s culture, early 2000s culture with regards to, to music, uh, these songs should be in the conversation. And they're just not. Uh, and I, I think it, the whole spark for the show came... You know, I got like Spotify fatigue. I think that's a, that's what I'm going to call it. Essentially, I listen to Spotify nonstop. I've been uh, a member uh, of that service for like over a decade now. I love it. It's amazing. It really opened up the world of music for everybody. Uh, music almost essentially became free on some level, which, you know, for someone like me, uh, you know, paying $20 for a CD back in 1996, it's, it's a different whole new universe. Uh, and there's a lot of amazing aspects to it. Um, but there's another side to it where essentially Spotify is choosing for us what we're listening to. Uh, you know, back in the nineties, it was the radio stations. It was the major labels paying the radio stations to play certain songs. They sort of determined what could be popular and what couldn't be popular. Not a hundred percent, but for the most part. And now I feel like historically looking back, it's streaming services like Apple and Spotify that despite giving us access to everything are kind of giving us a little myopic viewpoint of what let's say the top alt rock songs in 1998 were. I think I, I went onto the playlist there on Spotify, the official one, and I listened to it and I was like, yeah, these songs are good. I heard these on the radio back then a thousand times, but there was so much more going on then. And I don't just mean college rock, indie rock, kind of, you know, like experimental stuff on the side. Yes, that was all going on. That's amazing stuff. That's not what this show is about. This show is about songs that I think um, if they were given a real chance, you know, to be on the radio, to get a push by, um, you know, a major label that they would have been popular and they would be in this discussion when we talk about like the biggest songs or the most important alternative rock songs of the late nineties and early two thousands. And so I think every single drop song that I'm going to feature on this show is an awesome song that I think needs to be in that conversation, but just isn't because of whatever reason they were on an indie label, the major label didn't care about them. And I think that's maybe one of the cases, the case here with uh, Creeper Lagoon's Wrecking Ball. So let's, let's dive into this song a little bit more. Uh, so Creeper Lagoon, a band uh, from San Francisco, uh, formed in the mid nineties, Sharky Laguna, who was from Ohio, moved out to San Francisco, started making music. Uh, he teamed up with Ian Shefik. Um, they're kind of the core of Creeper Lagoon. They were big in the indie circles around like 1998 when their debut came out, uh, I Become Small and Go. That was on the Dust Brothers label, uh, Nickel Bag. Uh, and actually one of the Dust Brothers helped produce some of the songs on that album. 
So they had this kind of big pop uh, with this this indie album they put out. Uh, Spin uh, magazine named him the best new artist of 1998. And Spin was huge. I don't think Spin exists anymore, does it? Uh, Spin was up there with like Rolling Stone in the 90s. It's like one of the most important music publications. So they got a lot of buzz from that. Uh, and they transitioned that buzz into a major label deal with DreamWorks Records. Uh, DreamWorks doesn't exist anymore, uh, like a lot of music labels. Uh, they started in 1996. They shut down in 2006. Uh, it was started by uh, no other than Steven Spielberg. Yes, the film director. Jennifer, uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg, uh, who's like an entertainment producer guy. And then David Geffen, who's like, you know, the czar of music labels in the 80s and 90s. I guess back to the 70s, too. Uh, and so they created this new label. I think Geffen had to leave his old label that he created and start a new company. So he started DreamWorks. Uh, and so they signed uh, Creeper Lagoon. And it was a major label, a newer label, but these guys had tons of tons of power. It's David Geffen and Steven Spielberg. Like they have a lot of money here. This is definitely a major label at this time period, and it's right in the middle of the life of the label. And so you would think that Creeper Lagoon and Wrecking Ball uh, would have gotten a big push here. They had a video for it. I think that's how I found it. It was a, a video on MTV Two. Uh, is how I saw this song for the first time. Um, but it's it's not even clear that this song was released as a single. I looked on like Discogs and they're like, there's a CD single for like the UK and for the US. I never heard it on the radio. This thing never charted on any Billboard chart, uh, whether it be mainstream rock or alternative rock charts, two separate charts, this thing didn't get anything on there. Um, so I'm not even sure if it was really played on the radio at all. Um, and you know, why are we talking about, it? okay, so this song wasn't very popular. Not a lot of people heard about it. It's an unbelievable alt rock song. Like it is like fantastic. I think it's near perfect in terms of what probably should have been played on the radio back in the late nineties or in this case, the early two thousands. And what makes it so good? I mean, the production is unbelievably good. It sounds massive. It's like that wall of sound, but you can still pick out everything. So it sounds very intricate. Um, it's got a catchy hook to it across the board. The entire song is catchy in some way. Um, there's just these beautiful moments in it that you wouldn't hear in a lot of other songs. Like in the chorus, there's, I guess you call it like a counterpoint melody with a piano to the chorus vocal. And then on the last vocal, in addition to that uh, piano, there's another sort of counter vocal happening underneath the main vocal. It, it just is very layered, rich, wonderful song, incredibly tight too. how it was produced and written. Um, it's it just, there's something about it that is so so um enlivening it's just this blast of wonderful rock music and so i i think this song was made to play be played on like q101 in chicago or hot 1021 in milwaukee where i grew up and it just wasn't and it, the question is why didn't that happen i think you know they had a major label but dreamworks you know they had a lot of power but they're a little bit newer and maybe they're just Maybe they didn't believe in the band, which is crazy to me, because if you listen back to the entire album, Take Back the Universe and Give Me Yesterday, it is one of my favorite albums from, from this period. It is filled with songs like Wrecking Ball that are just, you know, that bombastic, a maybe a little bit over the top, maybe a little bit overstuffed, you could say, but it just works with them. Um, and the vocals are just rich and wonderful. Um... It's one of, you know, I keep going back to this, and I think it's the paradigm of a drop song. I think it is uh, a perfect alternative rock song, especially for radio play, but no one's ever heard of it. And I think, you know, it's got like, you know, sub 100,000 listens on Spotify now, whereas like, 
songs, big big songs from the era have like 10 million, 100 million easily. This one's just been completely forgotten. So I think it is a, a great way to start off this show and, and make it the first official drop song. That is Creeper Lagoon with a Wrecking Ball. Next up, we have a band that was huge north of the border in Canada, uh, but was kind of and still remains pretty unknown down here. Here is Matthew Goodband with Jenny's song. Stay alive 
That was Matthew Goodband with Jenny's Song off their 1999 album, Beautiful Midnight, or 2001 if you live in the United States. And that's a good sort of jumping off point here as to why uh, Matthew Good and Jenny's Song is, is a great drop song. Um, Matthew Goodband, if you're from Canada, you know who they are. Uh, especially if you were conscious in the late 90s and early 2000s. Uh, they were a massive band. Uh, they won Best Group, Best Rock Album for this album, Beautiful Midnight in 2000. I think it's one of the top 20 selling Canadian albums of all time. Um, so why are we even talking about this? Like, why why would this be lack recognition? Well, the thing is, despite the fact that they were huge and really massive in Canada, Hardly anybody ever heard of them in the United States. They never crossed over hardly uh, whatsoever. Uh, and so they're virtually unknown south of the border here in the U.S. Uh, and that's a real shame because I think Matthew Goodband was one of the better alternative rock bands during that time period. Um, they were also like really good with singles. Like if you listen to their um, album before this, Underdogs, there's just deep six uh, Rico, everything is automatic, indestructible. Those are all top 30 alt rock songs in the United States if they ever got a real push from their label. So, you know, Matthew Goodband, huge 1999, won all these awards. Atlantic picks them up to distribute them in the United States. Everything's going well. Obviously, they're going to break through because they're an amazing band and, you know, they're super popular up there. What happens? A few things happen. Uh, one, Matthew Good, who's the lead singer of Matthew Goodband, I don't know if he really wanted to break into the United States. Um, he's tends to be, and he's continued on to have a really awesome solo career. He's one of my favorite artists. Uh, he only did, Matthew Goodband broke up in 2001, a lot of strife and fighting uh, when they recorded their 2001 album, Audio of Being. Um, so they didn't last very long. He kept going, but he's a kind of a combative guy. And with the press tours and the marketing stuff, which you have to do if you want to be kind of popular and get some fame, especially in the United States, you got to play ball. He did not want to play ball. And there's a hilarious anecdote on some website about how he's getting interviewed by Seventeen Magazine for the promotion of uh, Beautiful Midnight, probably in 2001. And they ask him a question about his first kiss, and he tells this really sexually explicit story, so much so that the two ladies interviewing him walk out of the interview. He's one of those guys. Just very combative, did not want to sort of play the game, so to speak, network and schmooze. He's not, he's not that type of guy. So that was a one strike against them. You have a sort of uh, a reluctant lead singer and band leader uh, who didn't want to do marketing and promotion and stuff like that. So that, you know, that definitely hurt them. The other thing um, that kind of is a reason why they didn't get too popular is that they didn't want to tour the United States. They just had no sort of desire to do a 50-date tour in the U.S., so that hurt them a lot. Um, and I think the other thing, too, is the style of music that they make. Like Jenny's song is a great alt-rock single. It, it, it could easily have been in the top, let's say, top 20 alternative rock songs in 1999. It, you know, this record got delayed two years. Um, and then they, when they released it in the United States, they rearranged it and added songs from Underdogs. And the whole track listing's kind of screwed up. You, you know, you could see that Atlantic was making an effort to try to break this brand in the US. Um, and it just didn't click. And I think one of the main reasons is the type of music that Matthew Good makes. Yes, on the surface, it sounds like, you know, pretty bread and butter alt rock from the late 90s. 
Um, but there's a really dark undertone to a lot of his work. Uh, it's one of the things that I love about his music, especially his solo stuff. But it wasn't exactly radio-friendly, some of the stuff that he wrote. And on Beautiful Midnight is a song called A Boy and His Machine Gun, uh, which is about a young man who has mental illness uh, issues and crisis, and he sort of fantasizes about shooting people with a machine gun. Okay, right there, stop. Like, you can just see, like, the Atlantic PR and our people like, wait, wait, what did you say? Uh, so, you know, a lot of his work, and that song was actually censored on the U.S. version. So if you, I have the U.S. version somewhere here, it's actually, don't even spell out the, the song title. It's like the boy and dot, dot, dot. Uh, it's a very dark song. It's a very interesting song. Um, I, I can't say if it's good or bad. I think you have to decide that for yourself. Um, but Matthew Goodman did not, was not sort of sugary at all. There was no sort of saccharine element to what he was doing. Uh, you know, he suffered from mental illness himself, and he sort of wrote a lot about that in his music. And I think that that sort of undercurrent made some people uncomfortable. When you kind of add this all together, you know, a combative lead singer, uh, don't want to tour or play the marketing game in the U.S., and then uh, a lot of the subject matter of his work being eh, maybe a little bit unsavory for mass appeal, that's probably a big reason why they never crossed over to the United States. Now in Canada, they're very, you know, they're very popular and huge even to this day. I guarantee if you go to like Vancouver, which is where this band's from, you ask anybody over the age of like 30, they're gonna be like, oh yeah, I love Matthew Goodband. But down here, you're gonna hear crickets. It's gonna be like, who, what? Um, and why Jenny's song? Why is Jenny's song? Uh, getting selected here. Um, you know, I think it's a good example. Of, I could have selected some other songs off of Beautiful Midnight, but they all had like over a million plays on Spotify. And I want to like shy away from that because if it has a million plays on Spotify, I can't really call it a drop song because either it had recognition, recognition back then and I didn't realize it, or it's gotten recognition since. Uh, and there's a lot of songs that have sort of had a second or third life on the streaming sort of platforms. This is not one of them. Load Me Up is a great single. Hello Time Bomb, which actually did chart in the US. Like I, I will have to say that. It wasn't, I think it spent like 10 weeks on the chart, on the alt rock charts. So there was a little bit, a sort of tinge of popularity there, but it just, it faded very rapidly and no one else sort of picked up on, on the album or anything else. Um, but Jenny's song is sort of indicative of these great uh, singles that they put out. Like I mentioned before, Rico, Deep Six, uh, Everything is Automatic, put out in Canada, of course, not down here. And so Jenny's song is kind of, even I think within Beautiful Midnight, a little bit unrecognized. It's later in the album. All the singles are kind of up front. Uh, there's something about it that is just um, explosive and his vocals are wonderful and powerful and it has those great sort of, you know, post grungy guitars to it. Um, and I think what's also interesting about it too, where it has all these super mass appeal elements in terms of how it was written, produced and the, like the sonic textures to it. There is a, a huge dark undercurrent, like I mentioned before this song. Jenny's a real person. Uh, she did actually kill her father with a car. Um, she was sexually abused by her father, and that's why she did it. And she got off scot-free because she proved that her father molested her. That's what this song is about. Uh, and I think it's about his sort of friendship with her. And I think he feels like he's almost protector of her, something like that going on. But it sort of, it, that's why I think it's a fascinating song. It has all these you know, um, palatable aspects to it, but there's also this sort of, 
um, challenging aspect to the song about talking talking about something that we don't often talk about. Um, and he does it in such a way that is just emotionally rich and engaging. Uh, and I think it just, it, it's a really beautiful and wonderful song. So I wish more people have heard, had heard it back then. I wish more people hear it now. Uh, but that's why, you know, Jenny's song by Matthew Goodband is the second official drop song. Okay, the last drop song we're going to feature on this premiere episode of Drop Songs is from a band you almost 100% have heard of, um, but you probably have not heard this song from them. This is Better Than Ezra with Live Again.
better than Ezra with Live Again. That was off their third album, How Does Your Garden Grow, which came out in 1998. Now, you've probably heard of Better Than Ezra. They had that massive song, Good, back in 1995. Uh, that was off their first album, Deluxe, which was their biggest album. Uh, Good was just uh, a huge song across the board. It went to number one on the modern rock chart, which is now called the Alternative Rock Chart. We'll talk a lot about that chart on the show. Uh, it went to number three on the mainstream rock chart. It went to number 30 on the Hot 100. That's all music, essentially, and all radio. Uh, so it was a huge, huge song. There's a funny quote from the band. Uh, they're basically like, uh, it took us seven years to get signed and then seven weeks to go to number one. So it must have been a very heady experience for them. Uh, but they were certainly not a one-hit wonder uh, at all. Um, so Better Ezra, just a brief background on them. They're from New Orleans, formed in 1998 in Baton Rouge. But they're mostly, were based out of New Orleans and are still active today. They're still, um, still going. Uh, and still in New Orleans, I believe. Or oh, actually, no, that's not true. I think Kevin moved to Nashville, if I remember. So I think he's more into the songwriting now. But their biggest album was their first album, Deluxin. Came out in 1993. The single came out in 95. was huge. In the Blood uh, was a single actually before that that did okay. Reached number four alternative rock chart and number six on the mainstream rock chart. But okay, I mean, that was actually pretty awesome. Uh, that song was on the radio a lot. Good was always on the radio for like a year. Um, Electra, who they were assigned to, uh, they're basically like, you guys are awesome. Here's some more money. Go make us another album. So they uh, make Friction Baby, which is my favorite Baron Ezra album. I think it's a really fantastic album uh, all the way through. That came out in 96, only a year after Good hits number one. They have a brand new album and a brand new single, King of New Orleans, which does okay. Because uh, number five on Alternative Rock Chart, number seven on the Mainstream Rock Chart. So a lot of radio play. A lot of people have heard that song. But the second single is even better, I think. Desperately Wanting. Although it didn't chart as high as King of New Orleans, it stayed on the chart way longer. Uh, it stayed on for 26 weeks on the alternative rock chart. Uh, it, Desperately Wanting is one of those songs where if you left the 1021 on in Milwaukee back in this time period for like an hour, it felt like you heard this song at least twice every hour. It was constantly being played. So Ben and Ezra was very popular you know, 95 through, it's say, 97 when Desperately Wanting came out. Uh, Electro's happy with this. Everything is going well. Well, well, Friction Baby sold less than Deluxe, their first album with that big hit, Good. Um, I think everybody was still happy, you know, with what was happening. So they come out with their third album, 1998, How Does Your Garden Grow? It's really different. And I think that there's a, a quote from, I think it was either Kevin or someone in the band that basically said, you know, the third record is essentially make or break, and they really went for it. And I don't, there's actually like a, a short documentary on it on YouTube. You should check it out. If you like this album, you like Ben Ezra, check out that documentary. It's pretty cool about the making of it. It, it was kind of out there. And I remember picking this up, going to buy school supplies. This would have been sophomore year of high school for me. August of 98 and taking it back and listening to it. I was like, Oh, okay. Like this is interesting. It doesn't sound a lot like friction baby or deluxe. It's definitely, I don't want to call it experimental, but it's definitely them sort of swinging for the fences and trying to do something different at the very least. Um, and so the first single off that album was one more murder, uh, which was also on the X-Files soundtrack uh, that came out that summer. 
a very bizarre song to to pick as a first single off of an album. I think that's the first reason why this album did not do do very well at all, and it didn't it did poor enough that Elektra actually dropped the band after this. You know, they have two big albums, and then the third one's a a, a miss, and they're like bye bye. It's just how the music business was, unfortunately. Um, so one more murder doesn't do very well. At the stars was the second single off this album. Uh, it did okay. Like it reached number 17 on the alt rock chart. This would have been in November of 1998. Um, it does really well, but Electra and sort of, sort of with history and stuff, we've gotten more sound bites from the band about what happened. It sounds like at the stars was doing really well, but Electra for whatever reason, didn't believe in the album or didn't believe in the band enough. Didn't, didn't give them the resources, refused to shoot a music video for that. Now, if you're younger, you're like, well, what does that really matter? Like just put it up on YouTube. Well, YouTube didn't exist back then. Uh, everything went through MTV essentially. And it was music videos were a huge deal. I would say as important as getting on the radio was having your music video on MTV. And they, Electra said, we're not going to shoot a video for this single. And so the band was essentially DOA. And then the album really dropped off. I, no other single, I don't know if no other single got released, but no, nothing else ever charted. Uh, they put out an album. They kept going as a band. They're still going now. But essentially their popularity died with How Does Your Garden Grow, unfortunately. Uh, now this song, Live Again, was has always been one of my favorite songs off this album. I loved it from the first time I heard it back in 98. Uh, it has beautiful, lush production, the soundscaping and textures here. You can really tell that um, they went sort of the extra mile in creating, um, I don't know, like a, a more lush soundscape than a traditional rock song. Even King of New Orleans, New Orleans was a good song, but did not have this sort of... Uh, I don't know, did not have the intricacy that something like Live Again does. It just sounds very different. Um, it sounds almost like, and heaven forbid I'm going to make the comparison. Uh, I think what happened with Ben and Ezra is they probably listened a lot to OK Computer uh, by Radiohead, which came out in 1997. And that is sort of like, to me, the pinnacle of alternative rock, at least 90s alternative rock. Like, you're not going to get anything better than that. Uh, I think they were inspired by that to just be different, be more experimental with their sound. And you can hear that on Live Again, but it's not like out there. You know, it's still a song that I believe if they play it on the radio, can you imagine if they selected this song as their first single off this album? It would completely change their history and trajectory. Uh, unfortunately, it wasn't. I mean, the other things about this song that I love are the drums. Like, drums are not something that usually sticks out in an alt-rock single. Like, it's just... They're usually straightforward. There's certain songs like Everlong from Foo Fighters where you're like, oh, yeah, the drums are amazing. Uh, but with Ben and Ezra, it was just, you know, traditional sort of alternative rock drumming. This one, it's just the pattern and the rhythm is so uh, hypnotic. It's one of those songs where you can't really tell where the chorus and verse are. It's just this beautiful, wonderful uh, soundscape. You just want to live in and stay in. It's very comfy and cozy. You don't want it to go anywhere. It's also a song you can listen to on repeat over and over again, and it doesn't really get that old, uh, which is why it would have been perfect for the radio and why it should have been popular and why we should be talking about it more now and why, you know, when we're thinking about the top, the top songs of 1998 or top alternative rock songs, it should at least be in that discussion. Um, you know, the, the vocals on here, Kevin's vocals have always been phenomenal, 
but there's there's something special about the take that he does on this track. Uh, and then there's like, you know, one of the keys to a lot of uh, drop songs is that they do something a little bit extra than, um, you know, say Tonics You Wanted More, which is a great song and was very popular, but like some bands do a little bit extra in their songwriting. And one thing here that really I pick out every single time I listen to it is that melodic interplay between the guitar vocals and I think it's like a Rhodes piano, some electric piano in the background. It's just this very subtle, beautiful interplay that's going on that is almost too good for alternative rock radio if I'm being, a little, if I'm being honest. Uh, maybe a little bit too nuanced on some level. Uh, but they really push their sound on this record. And I think where... Um, I think How Does Your Garden Grow, uh, I love the album. It's not my favorite album because it's not really cohesive. There's a lot of uh, big hits and some misses on the album. Uh, it's it's pretty uneven, but when they do hit it, they hit it, they hit a grand slam. And that's what Live Again is to me. It is that mixture again of like palatable sort of alt-rock convention, but playing around with it and stretching it a bit and you know pushing it in different directions, and it just uh, it just pops to me. It's just one of those songs that I always go back to, and I I, uh, I really want people to to hear it, and especially younger people if they've never heard this song to check it out and check out this album because it's pretty awesome. Uh, but that's why I'm selecting Better Than Ezra's Live Again as the third official drop song. And that's it. Those are the first three official drop songs. Cripper Lagoon with Wrecking Ball, Matthew Goodband, Jenny Song, and last but not least, Better Than Ezra with Live Again. Those three songs to me represent a sort of endpoint of a very specific sound in alternative rock. Uh, if you look at the history of alternative rock in the 90s, it all, of course, starts with grunge. Uh, grunge is the North Star. It was a paradigm shift. It was massive. Uh, it's really hard to remember how big it was. I was alive back then and very conscious of grunge music, but I didn't realize until like looking at like charts and history and reading through Wikipedia and stuff how big it really was. I mean, Nirvana was essentially the Beatles in the early 90s. I mean, never mind beat out Michael Jackson for the number one album. Um, so it's just hard to state how huge it was. Uh, and the media sort of dove into it and sort of uh, more like bit bit into it, I should say, and really made it this huge cultural feeding frenzy surrounding grunge. Um, and it just became this, this cultural touch point in the early nineties. And that hurt a lot of people, the, the fame and the tabloids digging into people's lives. And you know, specifically Kurt Cobain was very hurt by it. Uh, and eventually due to, you know, his heroin addiction and his mental illness problems, he took his life in 1994. And with that, grunge kind of died with him, in a sense. Now, it didn't really die. It sort of got assimilated into different types of, of rock music and alternative rock. But the cultural movement of grunge definitely died with him. Um, and, you know, it was a, sort of a cultural vacuum because grunge was so huge. And then it was kind of just gone. And then, you know, in 94, 95, this new sort of sound and alternative rock starts popping up. I think maybe you can pinpoint it to Weezer's Blue album, maybe. It, way more melodic and major key than grunge. Uh, had similar sort of sound and sonic textures as grunge, the distorted guitar, the crunch, but definitely not grunge music at all. Uh, very different, in fact. And that sort of style of sort of melodic... 
um, rock, uh, maybe melodic pop, grunge. I don't know. There's no term for it. I mean, people use the term post-grunge, but post-grunge really means bands like Live and Bush, who took, and Stone Temple Pilots, I would say, that took the basic elements of grunge music and sort of tweaked them a bit to make them their own. And they made cool and interesting music, but it was yeah, definitely 90% grunge music just tweaked a bit. Weezer was not 90% grunge music. Third Eye Blind, Tonic, Everclear, no doubt, Better Than Ezra, Creeper Lagoon, Matthew Goodband, these are not post-grunge bands. And so there's not really a term that exists for this very popular form of music in the mid to late 90s that dominated radio dominated mtv um but there's just there's not a term for it it's so fascinating to me because there's like a thousand documentaries on grunge music but we don't even have a term for this type of music that lasted longer and was actually way more popular in, uh, in some sense um but that's what these songs you know these few songs represent the end point of that sound um especially like the creeper lagoon's wrecking ball to me is sort of the distillation of all those elements the polished production the hooky sort of almost poppy saccharine songwriting in terms of just the melodies being so attractive um and just the tightness of the writing and production um, you know, it's like the fullest version of that. It's like the, the wide spectrum view of it. Uh, the IMAX view of alternative rock is what I kind of what it sounds like. Right. And so it was kind of the end point of doing that. You couldn't go any further. You couldn't do any more with it. Um, and I think, you know, Matthew Good band uh, in the same way was a band that was able, Matthew Good was so smart and such a good songwriter. He could craft, uh, an alt rock single in his sleep almost. And Jenny's song is just him just doing his thing. Thing and hitting a home run. And then you think about Better Than Ezra, Better Than Ezra is like the perfect arc here. 93 Deluxe comes out, but it doesn't hit big till 95 with good. And then 96 is a little bit sort of more refined of that sound. By the time you get to 98, when How Does Your Garden Girl Live Again comes out, uh, they've already sort of moved past it. They've sort of tried to experiment, trying to do their own okay computer on some level. Um, so all three of these songs kind of ride that sort of last wave of this melodic alt rock sound that we got in the mid to late nineties. And I think there's, and I'm going to close it this show with a specific uh, band and song that I think really is the, the sort of um, paradigm of the end of this era of alt rock. Uh, so here is third eye blind with a track off of their second album blue uh, which of course was mostly massive, but not nearly as big as their first album, which is their debut album that had like six singles that went to top 10 on it. Um, but I think on their second album, they really pushed everything past the breaking point. Essentially, they exploded as a band during the process of making this. Um, but to me, this song truly represents the last broadcast of alternative rock. 